0: week or two. Um, Maybe drew a few of us out of our beds a little bit more readily and easily this morning. Uh, If you're new, my name's Jamie. Uh, I am the one who most weeks gets the privilege of opening up the scriptures with the church as we gather in this place. And uh, that is no different a task than it typically is this morning. We'll get there momentarily. Um, But before we do, uh, just a little bit of uh, catch-you-up-to-speed sort of work. If you haven't been around the last couple of weeks or maybe you've been back in the kid's wing and coupled with a vacation to go see family over the holidays or a sickness, maybe you come in this morning and this is your first week gathering with us since we dove into an Advent series a couple of weeks ago. Um, this morning marks roughly the halfway point of the Advent season. The Advent season is a season of celebration that the church has participated in for over 1,500 years now, roughly about 1,700 years. It's a, it's a season that uh, begins the fourth week, uh, the fourth Sunday before Christmas, and it leads all the way up through uh, the Christmas season itself. Uh, and so we will uh, this year, light the final candle of Advent on Christmas Eve, but we'll actually carry the series on into December 30th with the the goal of thinking beyond the first coming of Christ and this longing and connecting that to December 26th where everyone's bummed out and sad because Christmas is over and we have to take our tree down. and And we're going to talk about the beauty of the fact that there's a part of this story that 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 would make sense that we would feel that way as we look forward to Jesus coming back to finish the story with the most glorious happily ever after that the world has ever known. The word advent If you're unfamiliar with even the idea of Advent, if you're like me, you didn't grow up, you either didn't grow up in the church or maybe in and out, or you didn't grow up in a a very liturgical church setting, that word Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. The season of Advent is meant to focus our attention on the coming of Jesus into the world, the celebration of his first coming and the hopeful anticipation of his second coming. I think I mentioned this last week that uh, this is, virtually emotionally impossible this time of year because really what we're called to is uh, to both rejoice at the baby in a manger, and we're also called to yearn and long for this Jesus to come again to set all things right. And so most of us, we, we tend to lean in one of two directions. We tend to be very joy-filled this time of year, and we push people who are filled with sorrow off to the margins. Don't bother me with your sadness and sorrow. Come back and see me on December 26th when Christmas is over. Or uh, we err and lean in the other direction where because of our story, because of what we've experienced along the way, um, be it loss, um, suffering, sickness, death, uh, we tend to grieve a little bit more this time of year, and we can very easily push the joy filled people off to the margin saying, Keep your joy at bay until Christmas is over and then come see me. And yet, the Advent season is meant to be a both and, like ten, uh, tandem jet engines. We're meant to somehow both rejoice with fullness of heart and yearn uh, with fullness of heart at the same time. Advent's a season to rejoice at the birth of the Savior. In the trappings of a smelly stable, the humble condescension of the eternal God of the universe stooping down in order to raise us up out of our hopeless state, and it's also a season to long for, a season to acknowledge that all is not right in the world, a season to lament the brokenness in the world and in ourselves, a season to reflect on God's promises to be fulfilled when he does return to make everything sad, untrue. The hope of Advent ultimately is that we, we wouldn't go through this season indifferent to God's presence, caught up in the motions of dead, ritualistic, religious practices that, that seek to push God at, uh, to the margins, to keep him at bay, but rather that we would plead with him to break in, that we would plead with him to break through, that we would plead with him to awaken our hearts to the beauty and wonder of who he is and, and what he's accomplished for us. I shared a quote back in the first week of of this series from Robert Weber in his book, Ancient Future Time, which is not a science fiction book, believe it or not. It's a book on the liturgy of the church and the the seasons uh, within the Christian calendar. And Robert Weber says this as it pertains to the season of Advent. He says, The danger we all face as we prepare for the future is the tendency to be indifferent to the presence of God in our plans. We participate in that humanistic spirit prevalent in our Western world, a spirit that often expresses itself in the way we plan for the future. When we think we can do things on our own, we act as though we have little or no need of God. Then we become self-confident, we begin to believe in ourselves and think ourselves to be invincible. When this happens, God becomes remote and even absent from our lives. We may go for days without concern to hear God speak to us through his word. At the same time, the religious practices in which we engage, prayer before meals, attendance at Sunday worship, like what's happening in this room right now, he says, take on a ritualistic and somewhat meaningless character. We do them as one might run a machine in a mindless job. And they mean little to us. They have no power and God does not reach us through them. They have become dead forms, lifeless and without meaning. To say we did not mean for this to happen would be an understatement, he says. None of us wants God to become remote and removed from our lives. Nevertheless, God sometimes becomes distant. Perhaps, he says, we cannot trace back to the point at which we became spiritually indifferent, but we know the aliveness to God we once had has dissipated and is now lost in our personal experience. He goes on to say, perhaps we have not chosen to let God be in our lives. We live quite comfortably with God at a distance. In times like these, our personal experience is akin to Israel's before the birth of Christ, which gets at the Isaiah piece that we'll get to in just a moment. He says, it is also similar to the condition of the world today, a world that is still largely indifferent to its creator Uh, the one who alone can give it meaning and purpose. Our lives, as well as those of Israel, the church and the world, pass through rhythms of cold indifference. And then, he says, God breaks into our lives and we become open and receptive. In the twists and turns of these alterations, we are called to a new awareness of life, to new commitments, he says, to a new conversion of the soul. Whenever this happens, an advent has occurred. For Advent, he says, is the time when God breaks in on us with new surprises and touches us with a renewing and restoring power. As I've mentioned over the course of the last couple weeks of this series, my prayer is that God would do a little bit of interfering in in all of our lives, that he would shatter our complacency in the weeks to come leading up to Christmas, that he would rescue us from our spiritual apathy that that he would lead us to declare two things with fullness of heart. Glory to God in the highest at the first coming of Jesus Christ and amen come Lord Jesus with respect to his second coming. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Isaiah chapter 35. Sarah just read from the first 10 verses of that chapter of the Bible just a few moments ago. That's where we'll be this morning. Isaiah 35 verses one through 10. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the uh, seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles and open it up to this morning's passage. Um, If you came in with a Bible that's a little bit difficult to track with or you didn't come in with a Bible at all, please take one of those Bibles as our gift to you. We'll call it an early Christmas present, and um, you can use that Bible to read about Jesus in the weeks coming up to Christmas. Let me do this. Let Let me pray for us. And we'll dive in, and we'll get to work this morning. God, as I mentioned just moments ago, you have called us to the humanly, emotionally impossible, and not just in the Advent season, but it's the Christian life altogether. This dual celebrating of your first coming Jesus to inaugurate your kingdom and at the same time this longing for, this yearning for something better in, in your second advent, your return to set all things right when you come back to consummate your kingdom in the last days. I pray that you would help us and not just in the, the coming weeks leading up to December 25th, but for those of us who profess to, to believe and follow Jesus, that by your spirit, Lord, you would help us to walk in the fullness of both by your grace, to be a people who both rejoice at the glories of the gospel and a people who yearn for the fullness of your promises to find their fulfillment. God, I pray this morning that as we open up your word together, that you would be glorified, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would awaken our eyes to see the beauties and wonders of this God of Scripture who has divinely revealed himself to us. I pray that you would awaken our hearts from their slumber this morning. I pray that you would open our ears to hear and receive the beauty of your word. Holy Spirit, we're desperate for you. Apart from you, this is a hopeless endeavor. It's a futile effort. So we need you, Spirit of God, move in power in our midst in these coming moments together as we open up the Word of God and dive into the the glories of the first and second comings of Jesus Christ fulfilled in Isaiah 35. Lift these things up in His name. Amen. Isaiah 35 of course, is preceded by um, Isaiah 34. I don't know if you were aware of that. Um, and the church said, nah, really? Um, the, the reason I bring that up is because those two chapters of the Bible really and truly go hand in hand. Together, they, they ultimately describe in the, in the fullness of their fulfillment, the two final outcomes of redemptive history, the story that you and I are a part of. Chapter 35 depicts the final judgment of God's enemies. Chapter, or chapter 34, I should say, depicts the final judgment of God's enemies. Chapter 35 depicts the final salvation of God's people. It's a similar thing to what John does in the book of Revelation. If you go to the the very end of the Bible as it's pieced together in its ordering, you see John, the apostle John, paint these back-to-back pictures, a picture of God's final act of judgment in Revelation chapters 19 and 20, followed by a picture of God's final act of salvation in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. In that regard, Isaiah 34 which precedes this morning's passage, finds its ultimate fulfillment in Revelation 19, where we're told, bringing back some of last week's imagery, that Jesus is coming back as a warrior king. Listen to this description of Jesus's return in Revelation 19. It says this in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. That Jesus is coming back on a white horse, John tells us. The ultimate good guy, the greater John Wayne, you might say. He, he's, he's faithful and true. He, he, he comes in righteousness. He judges and makes war. That he must do away with evil in order to make everything sad, untrue. That heaven is no heaven at all if it's filled with wickedness, be it men or fallen angels. No one wants to live in a heaven where you have to look over your shoulder all the time. He goes on to say, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself, that his eyes are filled with a piercing gaze that causes his enemies to melt with conviction. No longer is he wearing a crown of thorns but rather many royal crowns. He has many because he's the king of kings. John goes on to say, he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. I love this. Jesus shows up for the final battle wearing cotton. I don't think he's planning on losing this fight, do you? No armor, no helmet, no breastplate, just a robe. And it's dipped in blood, either his own, which he shed on the cross to remind his enemies that he's a death conqueror. You thought the grave could keep me down? Well, guess what, you're wrong. Or it's the blood of his enemies as a way of saying, you're gonna experience this fate for yourself momentarily. John goes on to say, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Jesus' armies in fine linen. They they look like they're showing up for a beach party rather than a battle. They're not wearing fatigues, they're not wearing armor. Why not wear something that doesn't show blood? Why not wear something that doesn't show dirt? Why not wear something that doesn't show mud, you might ask? Well, the answer is because they don't plan on getting bloody or dirty or muddy. This is going to be an easy battle, and they're going to win it with such certainty that they're already dressed for the after party, you could say. John goes on to say, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, that with the same effortless authority that he spoke the world into existence in the very beginning, Jesus will speak. He will open his mouth and the power of his authoritative word will bring down his enemies like a sword in battle. And they will experience the fullness of God's wrath, John tells us. One of the beauties of the gospel is this, that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, the very last drop so that we don't have to. He made a way for sinners like you and me to stand in the presence of a perfectly holy God and not burn up in an instant, but rather enjoy making much of him forever. Only the cross of Jesus Christ can do that. But if we reject Jesus as our substitute wrath bearer, we will bear God's wrath for ourselves one day. John goes on to say, on his robe, on Jesus's robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That Jesus is cruising in on a white horse, flames in his eyes, sword protruding from his mouth, wearing all white, his angelic army wearing all white. And just to give further visible expression of the certainty of his victory, he already has a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Or to paraphrase, I win. Jesus knows that, that all opposing kings and kingdoms don't stand a chance when he returns to set all things right. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. I could just, I could keep going. I could just preach Revelation 19 this morning and be perfectly content. Suffice it to say that that Revelation 19 paints a complete full picture of victory for King Jesus over his enemies, the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 34. Now, why you might ask, would, would I spend so much time on Revelation 19? And the answer is this. Without Revelation 19, there is no Revelation 21 and 22, two of the most glorious chapters in all of the Bible, the last two chapters of your Bible, declaring the final salvation of God's people. Listen to some of these descriptors of the new heaven and earth in the last two chapters of Revelation. John says... He goes on to say in the next chapter, Revelation 22, verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Like, that kind of happily ever after... It cannot happen without the defeat of those in opposition to the king and his eternally good kingdom. No one wants to live in a Narnia eternally inhabited by the white witch and her band of followers. Without the destruction of the enemies of God, there is no everlasting peace for the people of God. By the way, that's one of many Narnian references that you're going to get this morning. So if you are not familiar with that story or have not read um, that book, uh, I apologize in advance. And also I will happily buy you a copy at no cost to you. Just come find me after the service. That there's, there, there's coming a day, you heard me pray it earlier, in which Jesus will return to make everything sad, untrue. But in order to do so, he must eradicate evil from the world. He must that without Revelation 19, there is no Revelation 21 and 22. Similarly, without Isaiah 34, there is no Isaiah 35, this morning's passage that we're looking at. Isaiah 34 depicts the final judgment of God's enemies. Isaiah 35 depicts the final rescue of not only God's people, but creation itself. Look at verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 35, verse 1, begins with these words. The wilderness and the city, or excuse me, and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Most of you in this room, you you know the story. In the beginning, there were no thorns and thistles. There was no desert drought. There was no having to bag up dead leaves this time of year. There there was a perfect utopian garden sanctuary, God's place inhabited by sinless image bearers, God's people in glad submission to him as their covenant creator, God's blessing and rule. Imagine that. If you can, those of you who do a lot of yard work, it may struggle to try to. Imagine a, a world with all the beauty of creation minus the thorns and thistles and deadness. and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, Paul says, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That all those leaves you have to bag up are going, yeah, I know, I know this stinks. The creation longs to be freed from the curse pronounced upon it in Genesis chapter three. That as a result of man's sin, the Bible tells us, the fertile garden has been turned into a desolate wasteland. According to... Isaiah 35, verses one and two, that won't always be so. That there's coming a day in which the wilderness and dry land shall be glad, Isaiah says. That that there's coming a day in which the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Up on the screen behind me is a picture of a crocus flower. It's one of the the first flowers that blossoms at spring. Even before the, the snow has fully thawed, it comes up, comes forth from the earth symbolic of a new day. It's like the scene in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. There it is, in, in which the winter snow begins to melt, revealing the destruction of the white witch's winter and the first sign of spring. It's when the first panic begins to set in for the white witch and her followers. Revelation 22, verses one and two Says, then the angel showed me, John says, the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 35. No drought, no fruitless desert rather the river of life and the tree of life. And at the center of the eternal city, we're told is God himself and the lamb, Jesus Christ, God's people inhabiting God's eternal city, the new Jerusalem, which shines with God's glory and splendor forever. It's ultimately about God's glory. Verse two of this morning's passage says it this way, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Purpose of these verses um, Isaiah goes on to tell us is to encourage the feeble and the faint-hearted. If you come in this morning, you go, man, I'm struggling. I, I know I'm supposed to rejoice at the, trinkle, uh, the, trinket, trinkle? the trinkets and the tinsel and, and the, the toys and the trees and the decorations and all that stuff, but my life is, is pretty wrecked right now. And, and, and you could go on and on about all the ways that you're struggling this time of year, the purpose of Isaiah 35 is to encourage you, the feeble and the faint-hearted. Isaiah goes on to say, in verse three, strengthen the weak knees and make firm the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. That this passage of scripture is meant to function like an oasis. It's a place to come and and gather your strength. The the feeble and faint-hearted have reason to keep persevering. God is committed to you. He's faithful to keep every one of his promises to you. His enemies shall know his vengeance. Again, Revelation 19. But for his people, consummate joy and gladness in God are just up ahead. It really is a blink away. Verse five goes on to say, springs of water coming forth from the the thirsty ground, Isaiah says. But notice that he also includes in in these verses the perfect healing of God's suffering people. That where there is now suffering, there will be perfect healing. Where there is now longing, there will be fullness of joy from the fount that overflows in the light of the king as we sing often around here. Both physical and spiritual healing and wholeness. If you read the gospel accounts, you know that Jesus gave us a, a taste of the fulfillment of these verses in his first coming. Right? The gospels provide us with story after story of Jesus healing the sick, making paralytics walk, making blind men see, making dead men and women breathe. A mere taste of what's to come when he returns to set all things right. Andrew Davis in his commentary on Isaiah says this. He says, Every healing Jesus ever did in his life has been in some way reversed by death. Think about this. He says, the eyes of the man born blind that Jesus healed in John 9 are presently closed by death. The ears of the deaf man that Jesus opened by sighing and saying, Ephephetha in Mark chapter seven are presently closed by death. The legs of the paralyzed man who was lowered through the roof that were strengthened by Jesus's power in Mark chapter two are now made motionless by death so also the tongues of every mute person that Jesus healed are now stilled by death. Those miracles did not solve the true problem of the human race, namely death, he says, but they were infallible signs of a total healing that God intends to give every believer in the resurrection. Then alone, he says, will the glories of Isaiah 35 be fulfilled. Death is the last enemy to be abolished. And when death is abolished by the full redemption of our bodies at the resurrection, then creation itself will forever be liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's the language of Romans 8. The Apostle Paul describes this final healing of the body on the day of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. What is, what is Paul talking about there? He says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. That the body that you and I now have is mortal. We get sick. Some of you are sick this very morning. My kids a week ago missed our community group time as did my wife because of sickness. Anybody ever get frustrated that trying to move toward this value of community oftentimes gets hijacked by the human body? And not only do we experience sickness, we all die. Preached my own grandfather's funeral not even three weeks ago. None of us are escaping death unless Jesus returns before we breathe our, our last breath. Right? Ben Franklin said it. Two things are certain, death and taxes. You can bank on that. Our bodies are destined for death. But, but on the other side of death, Paul says, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more blindness. There will be no more lameness. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more Alzheimer's. I could just keep going and eventually I'd hit the sickness or ailment that pricks your heart because you've experienced it or you know someone and love someone who has. Paul says, our resurrected bodies will be imperishable. He goes on to say, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, that the body you have right now carries dishonor, that you and I were born with a sin nature. From our first breath, there's an element of dishonor that we carry. We use our bodies at times for dishonorable things. But Paul says on the other side of death, no more sin, no more defilement, no more shame, no more feeling dirty. That word glory, comes from the Greek word doxa, which is where we get our word doxology. It means praise, that Paul is saying our resurrected bodies will be glorious, honorable to our king, designed for praise of our God, that you won't be like a car heater anymore. It won't take you to the second song when we come in this place to warm up spiritually. Your body will be an instrument of unending praise forever and ever and ever Paul goes on to say, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, that the body you have right now is weak, lacking strength. On the other side of death, no more weakness, no more frailty. Our resurrected bodies will reign with Jesus Christ in power over all of creation. Paul says that elsewhere in 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul says elsewhere, those who are in Christ will one day judge the world and angels. I've said it before as we've looked at passages like that. Don't ask me to explain that. I cannot, it's impossible. But we will be participants in Jesus's final eradication of evil forever. Again, It's like that final battle in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Lucy, Edmund, Susan, and Peter are crowned and given the four thrones at Care Paravel, the castle by the sea, that what is now weak will one day reign in power with Jesus Christ as his co-heir. Paul also says it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body, that the body you have right now is natural. Your resurrected body will be spiritual He's not contrasting the material and the immaterial. We know that because Jesus' resurrected body was a material body. You could touch it. He ate fish. It went into his body. He digested it. What Paul's doing is he's contrasting the natural with the supernatural, that you currently have a body suited for the present life. Your body is ill-equipped for the new heaven and earth, you might say. Your resurrected body will be renewed in fullness by the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will be fully at work within you. Perfect healing and wholeness. Perfect fullness of joy. Coming back to Isaiah 35, verse eight. It says, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, and it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That the highway to heaven is the highway of holiness, verse eight tells us. The the devastating news is that We talk about this a lot around here. You can't get there on the basis of your own merit. Isaiah says that the unclean shall not pass over it. The same same Isaiah, think about this, if you were around for the start of this series, the same Isaiah who declared himself in chapter six to be unclean says the unclean shall not pass over the highway of holiness. Going back to week one of this series, who, who can stand in the presence of the holiness of God without being consumed in an instant? Like Isaiah, we're all a people of unclean lips, which is why I find it to be such good news that these verses declare that it's the redeemed who shall walk there. It's the ransomed of the Lord who shall experience that joyful homecoming. Jesus himself, in the gospel accounts, declared himself to be the way, to use the language of verse eight of Isaiah 35. Christians in the book of Acts, which we're gonna come back around to in the spring and finish are referred to as belonging to the way. That Jesus is the way. He lived the perfect life of holiness on our behalf that we could never live. He died the sinner's death that we deserve to die. Our ransom, our redemption to be among the redeemed, the ransomed is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says some sobering words, as he was known to do to the Pharisees where he says, Matthew 12 verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The the reality is that, that there are no mere spectators in this divine redemptive historical drama that we're caught up in. Every single person walking this planet is either to use the imagery yet again is either on the side of Aslan or the White Witch. And the scriptures tell us that whose side we're on is not based on moral fiber. God's not looking down from the cosmos with his naughty and nice list. This real life fairy tale is not filled with heroes and villains. It's not filled with good guys and bad guys. It's filled with bad guys and Jesus, villains and Jesus who came to rescue villains like you and me. We're all sinners desperate for a savior. As I mentioned last week, Christmas is an indictment before it's a joy, that God came to us is this unwavering declaration that we could never get to Him. We could never do enough to bridge the gap between His holiness and our sinfulness. Christmas, as I've said for weeks now, is not the celebration of self rescue, it's the celebration of Jesus Christ, our rescuer. How do we find ourselves among those in triumphal procession in the end? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and the King who entered His own story and kingdom to shed His blood in order to bring us into his eternal consummate kingdom of joy and gladness. For those who are in Christ, the homecoming of God's redeemed, the ransom of the Lord, is going to be absolutely overwhelming. It's going to make it silly for us to think, wait to return Jesus until December 26th, until we get Christmas out of the way. Andrew Davis, again, in his commentary, says it this way. He says, The final destination of those traveling the holy way is Zion, the city of God, where God and man will dwell together. The thrice annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem in Israel's calendar were shadows and prophetic foretastes of the journey that all the redeemed must travel to enter the true Zion, the new Jerusalem, where they will at last enjoy the full salvation purchased for them by the blood of Christ. I say it, uh, I've said it every week in this series and I'll say it again, amen, come Lord Jesus. That's part of the application of this series week in and week out, that we would find our hearts not just saying glory to God in the highest based on what we see when we look in on the manger, but that our hearts would declare amen, come Lord Jesus. I'm perfectly okay if you come back right now before I even get a chance to get back in my car and drive home and look at my tree one last time. That when he returns, As we sing this time of year, his blessings will flow far as the curse is found. As far as you can think of the the outworkings and stretchings of the curse on this world and on man, as far as you can dream it, that's how far the blessings of God will flow when he returns to set all things right. The Christmas story is not over. The same Jesus who made his appearance in a lowly manger a couple thousand years ago will come again. And when he returns, everything sad will, not might, will come untrue. And the best part of that happy ending is that you and I will see him. He will will be just as visible and real as he was when he came to lowly Bethlehem a couple thousand years ago. Consummate joy and gladness right over the hill, just up ahead. And so, Again, if you come in this morning feeling faint-hearted, weak-kneed a little bit, bummed out by everything that makes this world sad that surrounds you, I would say like Isaiah, don't lose heart. My prayer is that the promises of God would be an oasis for you this morning as you leave this place, a place to gather your strength, that God is committed to you. And we're gonna talk about this on Christmas Eve. He is faithful to keep every one of his promises in Jesus Christ to you. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship as we do every week, a few different ways. Communion tables will be open, a couple up here up front, one in the back until the end of the service. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Invite you to come, take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. As you prepare to do that, you can come when you're ready to do that. As you prepare to do that, just sit, look at Isaiah 35 for a moment or two. Take note of those words, the ransomed of the Lord, the redeemed. And stop and pause and acknowledge and celebrate the fact that it's because of Jesus that you can call yourself among the ransomed of the Lord this morning, among those who are in triumphal procession toward Zion, toward consummate and eternal joy.